1: Find a location near you at Bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and A member FDIC. Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallets, Smart Money Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Doc G, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. <laughs> Even I was originally skeptical of FIRE. Financial independence, retire early. But thinking back, I shouldn't have been. My step-grandfather retired from dentistry at the age of 49. He put all his money into the stock market, picked up and moved from New Jersey to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and lived the next 50 years of his life without ever collecting another paycheck again. We think of financial independence as this new idea. But if you look back, actually, in the 1970s and 80s, Joe Dominguez and Vicki Robin were teaching courses on and eventually wrote their book, Your Money or Your Life. Fast forward to 2007 and Jacob Lund Fisker started the blog Early Retirement Extreme. And shortly thereafter, Mr. Money Mustache started writing about financial independence retire early. Back then, the movement seemed to be mostly white, professional males. But the fire movement has risen like a phoenix from the Great Recession of 2008 and matured to be more robust, more inclusive, and dare I say, even more intellectual. And yet, I wouldn't blame you for being skeptical. I certainly was. Christine Benz is a Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar and a Senior Columnist for Morningstar.com, as well as a co-host of the Longview Podcast. Christine, welcome to
0: the show. Hi, Doc. Good to be here.
1: It's great to have you. We were chatting before this that we are both from Chicago. We are doing this via internet, as everyone is nowadays. We don't see each other person to person because of coronavirus, but we're actually not that far away from each other right now.
0: That's right. That's right. Hot summer days here in Chicagoland.
1: Most definitely. I want to jump in with what I think is a little bit of a controversial question. Is there a lack of love between financial independence, retirement early practitioners, people who believe in the FIRE movement, and those in the financial advice industry?
0: I think potentially there is. And I do think that there's this tendency to have sort of this knee-jerk reaction, which... I admit I had to fire when I initially started reading about it several years ago. There's this sense that how can these people have possibly done the work on retiring early to have confidence in hanging it up at these really young ages? So I think there's a skepticism that the early retirees don't have the financial planning chops That many financial advisors do. And in some cases, that's very likely true. But I think once you dig deeper, you do get to see that there are many FIRE proponents who have been super thoughtful about the financial planning aspect of their plans and have really troubleshot a lot of the risk factors that financial advisors are thinking about. So I would urge financial advisors to take a closer look. But, you know, another part of the FIRE movement is kind of this DIY mentality that you want to try to disentangle yourself from costly relationships. So there's sort of this index fund ethos that tends to prevail in a lot of corners of the fire movement there is a sense that you really want to keep your costs low in your life but also in your financial plan so probably some financial advisors feel the sense that they're they're sort of on the sidelines of this that they you know cannot be involved with clients who are practicing fire so there's probably some of that as well
1: think back for me do you remember the first time you heard of the fire movement and what were some of your first immediate thoughts
0: Yeah, I I don't remember specifically, but certainly, I actually, I'm thinking about it now. I was speaking at a financial advisor event in New York, and actually, it was sort of a pro bono financial advisor event that financial advisors were putting on for the community. So I was kind of keynoting this event. There was a great lineup of speakers And someone came up to me who was a fellow Boglehead, which is sort of this parallel community of people who are big believers in the index fund way of constructing portfolios. So it was a fellow Boglehead, someone I had met before. And he said he liked my presentation, but said he was also increasingly interested in Mr. Money Mustache and urged me to check it out. He felt like there were a lot of synergies with with Bogleheads, which there are. So I think that that was probably the first time I heard about it. And initially, I was skeptical mainly because a lot of my career has been focused on retirement decumulation, sort of traditional retirement decumulation over, say, a 25 to 30-year time horizon. So I've spent a lot of time learning the research that's been done about traditional retirement decumulation about like the 4% withdrawal guideline and so forth. And I knew that most of that research had been stress tested over say a 25 to 30 year time horizon. No one had stretched it out to look at a 40 or 50 year time horizon. So I was a little bit worried about the, the fire adherence initially thinking that You know, they can't possibly be thinking about sequence of return risk. A lot of the things that we know bedevil traditional retirees are that much bigger a deal for young retirees. So I guess my initial pushback was more sort of in that realm. And then something that lingers with me is this sense of like the early retirement piece that are we really meant to do this Or should we be spending our time doing stuff throughout our lives? And I still come down on that side of the fence that I really believe even if you retire from remunerative work that earns you a salary, you should continue doing stuff throughout your life. So I would still say that that's kind of a lingering bit of skepticism in my mind, that my hope is that fire proponents who do retire early should continue to engage in work in some fashion whether it pays money or not is is up to them but i like the idea of us continuing to be engaged and continuing to make a contribution to our communities throughout our lives
1: it's an interesting dichotomy the purely mathematical financial viewpoint versus the more ideological meaning we have in our life and what we consider our life's work. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the future. But interestingly enough, this idea of financial independence doesn't seem new. When you really go back and look at it, I had never associated the acronym FIRE with my step-grandfather, but most of us have known... That person in our community who stopped working at an early age and we always figured they were independently wealthy or what have you but no one called it those words and certainly no one talked about their exact strategies of how they were continuing to exist and pay for their lives not working until more recently
0: that's right that's right it's been around for a long time you referenced some of the books that have been really pre-fire And I've spoken to various people who are thought leaders in the FIRE movement. One, I was recently having a conversation with Michelle Singletary, who's a reporter at the Washington Post, writes on personal finance. And Michelle, for years, has been talking about financial independence, but she didn't really talk about FIRE specifically. So this has been around for a long time. Certainly, it's challenging as more and more folks are retiring without the benefit of pensions. I think that when many of us think of early retirees, we may have known they may have been teachers, for example, who retired at 55 after having logged 30 years in the classroom. That's a smaller subset of our population, people who who are retiring with, with the benefit of pensions.
1: And it's notable to say that way back when, retiring early was in your 50s. Or maybe your early 60s. Now we have people talking about doing it in their 30s and early 40s. So it's almost as if the definition has radically changed. It's interesting to try to tie that to the change in defined benefit plans, but certainly pensions have seen their better days in the United States and we will be seeing less and less of them in the future.
0: Definitely. I mean, it's so rare that someone's hired into a position in the private sector where they're offered any sort of pension upon joining the company. Increasingly, it's the domain of of folks in the public sector.
1: I had mentioned that I was somewhat skeptical of the FIRE movement when I first heard of it, and certainly I think you were too. You recently had on your podcast, The Long View, Tanya Hester and Chris Mamula, two financial independents retire early practitioners, people who have been in this movement for a while and speak very clearly about it. Did they change your mind a little bit?
0: They did. And spending time reading their respective blogs as well in preparation for the podcast and just seeing the extent to which they had looked at the financial planning dimension of this Gave me more comfort with the whole thing. Those two of of the fire practitioners I know are just incredibly thoughtful about some of the risks that can crop up with early retirement. So they've thought hard about one of the biggies, which is healthcare coverage in the early retirement years, pre-Medicare years, which for them, you know, might stretch like 25 years. How do you obtain coverage and maintain coverage? And of course. That whole space is changing quickly. I would expect to see. My personal hope is that with this pandemic, we start paying more attention to how questionable it is that our healthcare coverage is tethered to our employment. I mean, you've got legions of unemployed people in the midst of a healthcare crisis. It just doesn't make any sense. But those two had thought hard about the healthcare coverage piece about other forms of insurance coverage, disability coverage, for example, and the the fact that coverage may not be available to you if you have, do not have a, a job. So all of those considerations, as well as something that's front and center, which is what in retirement planning circles we call sequence of return risk, which basically means the likelihood that you'll encounter a bum market environment during your drawdown period. And so when we think about traditional retirement planning, that sequence of return risk is something we talk a lot about, think a lot about, as Tanya pointed out in her discussion with us, if you stretch out the retirement decumulation period, the odds that you'll hit more than one of these really bad market environments are front and center. And so she she talked to us in depth about how she had structured her plan to be flexible in the face of what she expects will be several bad periods of market returns. And she and her husband have also thought about lifestyle adjustments that they're willing to to incorporate if they encounter a bad sequence of returns. So potentially selling their home, moving to a smaller home, all sorts of adjustments that they might make around the margins to help them be flexible and maintain their financial independence and their early retirements in the face of bad market results.
1: We look at the FIRE movement and it sounds quite radical, but one thing I noticed, which I think you learned as you did these interviews, is that those who really go down the FIRE rabbit hole tend to be fairly fiscally conservative, which you wouldn't expect
0: no that that's exactly right, so there's this ethos of frugality which infuses the fire movement, and that's how they make it work right that in order to retire early, you do have to incorporate a certain level of thrift it doesn't have to be radical. there are certainly some sects within the fire movement where people are living on very, very small amounts, you know, and to me, that was sort of a non starter when I thought about the movement and that I you know, feel like youth and good health are years to be enjoyed and you probably don't want to completely forego spending money on enjoyable things. But definitely there is an, an ethos of thrift that accompanies the pre-retirement years as well as the retirement years. And that really dovetails in a lot of ways with that focus on thrift in the investment plan as well, the focus on index funds, the focus on not overpaying for financial advice to the extent that you use a financial advisor. Maybe it's an hourly person, which is often the most economical way to pay for advice. So that thrift ethos infuses the whole movement, I think.
1: The movement has evolved when it comes to thrift if you look back to 2007, maybe the beginning of the modern day fire movement with Jacob Lund Fisker and early retirement extreme, he was living in Chicago like in you and I and was talking about living on five to ten thousand dollars a year. I don't really believe that's what most fire practitioners believe in today. I think the message has evolved quite a bit. And so things have changed. I think that thriftiness still pervades itself in the movement, but it is not front and center as the driving force the way maybe it was in the beginning.
0: I think that's right. I mean, speaking to Chris Mamulant and Tanya too, both avid travelers, Chris mentioned that he had been to every con- he and his wife had been to every continent, so I think that there are different gradations at the same at the same time. Chris and his wife had relocated to what they found to be just a better part of the country for them. They live in in Utah. They're very outdoorsy. Love outdoor activities, but that did mean moving away from their families in order to live there and obtain a lower cost of living on an ongoing basis. So that I think there are trade offs. And, you know, ultimately it's up to each of us. We make these trade-offs all the time in terms of lifestyle adjustments, things that we, you know, think are worth it to spend money on, whereas things we're more frugal about. And I think all of us make those adjustments all the time.
1: Now, shortly after doing those interviews for the Longview Podcast, you wrote a piece called Confessions of a Former Fire Skeptic. And I was really interested in your approach You approach this topic through discussing the Robin Hood trading mentality, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that is and why you approach the FIRE conversation from that angle.
0: Yeah, well, you know, there's been so much in the news about the Robin Hood traders, including a very sad story about a, a Chicago area, a young person who had found himself wildly overleveraged in his Robin Hood account, lost a bunch of money and ultimately committed suicide. So that's sort of the saddest, darkest example of Robin Hood. I, I think that there is a lot to like about young people getting familiar with investing, maybe making mistakes with Trading in sort of a safe space where they don't, you know, they generally don't have a lot of money to lose. But I really, the more I started to think about it, the more I began to think, we're probably not saying enough about the best way to get started in investing. I wondered if, especially because Morningstar has a big investment in individual stock research, I think we do terrific work there. I wondered, had I maybe pulled back a little bit on being critical of young people getting started in investing by dabbling? in individual stocks. So I actually tweeted something out about how I felt like in the investment community that I work in, maybe we're just not being forthright enough about saying, don't start this way. Start by just buying an inexpensive index fund, maybe a total market index fund or a global total market index fund, or maybe a target date fund. Get broad-based diversification. Put your money to work in that fashion versus dabbling in individual stocks. So that's what kind of got me thinking about there's the Robin Hood traders, the people who are betting heavily on the Fang stocks, building narrowly diversified portfolios of technology stocks, or maybe more recently, some of these beaten-down travel and leisure names. So that's one way people are going about it. On the other hand, there's this fire movement that seems for all the world to be a much healthier way to go about getting started. So my thought was, if you've got young people in your life who you want to try to influence, and we all do, spend some time talking to them maybe about both ways of doing it and, and know your kid, know what will get them excited and get them set on the on the right path. But definitely think about exposing them to fire because I think that for a lot of young people, if they were to learn about fire maybe 10 or 15 years into their careers, they might say, gosh, I wish I had known about this earlier on. So that was really the genesis for me, kind of transitioning to the discussion about FIRE and why I think there's so much healthy sort of food for thought for young investors.
1: So we're going to get to the fun part, which are specific criticisms about FIRE. But before we get there, I guess just a basic question. Where would you say... Your thoughts are now on fire. Would you say that you have a begrudging acceptance, or are you more in the open embrace phase of thinking about fire?
0: I would say I'm more toward the open embrace phase, <laughs> mainly because, well, for a lot of reasons, but this pandemic, I think, has given us all, or many of us, some people are completely busy and swamped, but it's given many of us a chance to kind of take a step back from the lives we were li- living before we got here. And so I think it's given everyone a chance to be more thoughtful about, you know, what, what am I doing? You know, what, what am I saving for? What are my goals? And so I think that the FIRE, in a lot of ways, is just kind of an evolution of financial planning away from a focus strictly on financial allocations more to incorporate time on earth allocations, which I think matters so much. So I would say I'm more in the open-hearted embrace of fire. I think there are certainly some screwy, sketchy things going on under the, the fire umbrella, but I think that there's a lot of healthy food for thought there as well.
1: All right, so let's talk about some of those criticisms. We've covered some of them a little bit, but there was a famous story on Twitter of a young fire couple who had used points to travel to some exotic city and decided they wanted to save money on breakfast, so they bought a loaf of bread and used the ironing machine in their hotel room in order to make toast. There's been some criticism roundly that there is an over-consideration of thrift and that there's a miserliness towards the fire movement that maybe is frankly unhealthy.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's a valid assertion. I, I had seen that specific story about the toast makers, but that's scary. I think that there are some very thrifty elements of fire, but I think there are also some people who are taking a more healthy approach to spending. So I, I don't think you can generalize about the excessive uh, zealotry for thrift. I think that that there's a gradation there and there are some people who are healthier in their approach. I guess when I think back to my husband's in my early years, we were so grateful that and we st- still travel a lot or we hope to return to travel, but we, we were able to take some trips that really... Pr- created just such amazing memories, namely with our parents. And our parents, I don't think would have been in the mood for extremely thrifty trips when they were in their 70s. So we had some just tremendous vacations in Europe with our parents, where we had wonderful dinners, and you know, that we wouldn't have been able to do that on on an extreme fire lifestyle. So I think people need to make their peace with spending and how they you know, are are spending their lives in their 20s and 30s, which are such terrific years to take stock of everything and, and really enjoy yourself.
1: We also see a lot of people who start on that super thrifty pathway and find themselves a little bit depressed and anxious and evolve into a much more relaxed fire lifestyle. So there's some evolution, I think, that also takes place after you've been doing this for a number of years that a lot of people actually let go of the reins and are not nearly as thrifty as they started out to be and yet understand the mathematics a lot better as well as the investing side and realize that they can both save for the future as well as enjoy the present. So I think that changes with time in the movement too, because it's very few people who do this for 10, 15, 20 years And still are willing to go to those levels of thriftiness when they realize that it probably isn't adding to their life as much.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Another thing we delved into with both Tanya Hester and Chris Mamula is couples. So, people who are part of some sort of partnership, how important that is to be on the same page. And to me, it seems like, you know, the more the focus is on thrift and pinching every penny the less likely it is that you'll find someone who's similarly (laughs) on board with that. If you, you know, if you are part of a partnership. And so I think that that's a dimension of it too. That may be why some people who had started maybe early on as single people, but ventured down this path, loosened the reins a little bit. Maybe they got involved with someone who while somewhat on board with the concept of financial independence, retiring early was not on board with the extreme thrift. And you know, then you add kids into the mix as well. Do you want to deprive children of experiences that you might want to give them? So there, there are a lot of separate considerations that that relate to relationships and family, I think, as well.
1: Another thing you mentioned earlier was this demonization of work. That in fact, especially in the beginning of this movement, it was a lot of young white professionals who didn't like their jobs. Who are preaching this lifestyle? Yet there's something to be said for working. There's something that it adds to our life above and beyond monetary gain. Has the movement gone too far in demonizing work?
0: I think some, and you know, I'm not an expert in fire, but I would say that there are some quarters in the fire movement where, you know, the retire early is the main or perhaps even only goal. And I guess that is still a reservation that I have because I have had this extraordinary privilege of having a job that I love and having a job that provides me with a lot of intellectual stimulation. It's provided me with so many friendships. And that's something that I really miss acutely through this period, the ability to see my colleagues and and spend time with them, have lunches with them and so forth. The Zoom meetings just don't replace that. So I do worry for people who are just seeing work as this slog that they've got to get through. My advice is if you're in your 20s and 30s and that's how you're feeling about work, find another job. Life is short, bad things can happen out of the blue. So, you know, just as you wouldn't want to be overzealous about thrift, I think it's a mistake to put up with even a high paying job that you don't enjoy for even a couple of days. Really spend your time trying to find another position, maybe in another career path entirely, rather than just using work as something that you need to get through. I would say that's still an objection I have for people who have that mindset in fire. That just doesn't seem like a healthy way to go about life because work can be so enjoyable.
1: A piece of advice that a lot of us give to people who are newly interested in financial independence is stop looking at early retirement as, as the goal because unfortunately or fortunately, one day you'll get there. And if you don't have goals above and beyond that, you're going to find it a very hollow victory. What you say really rings true, I think, in the sense that if you can figure out what you want to do after the so-called early retirement and eventually incorporate that into a job, the monetary means you need to get to financial independence aren't nearly as important if you're kind of building that post-retirement idea of life into your current everyday workplace.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, I love that idea of someone not necessarily retiring early, but obtaining financial independence or like obtaining a baseline of financial comfort that in turn allows them to pursue work, maybe paying work, maybe non-paying work that provides them with a sense of, of purpose and meaning. I think that that's just an incredible dimension of all of this. The
1: other portion of the argument against fire is that it's a very privileged and entitled look at your personal finances. And I've mentioned a few times that the people who originally were well known in this movement tended to be white young males who were in very high paying professions. And it's an argument that goes back and forth. Is fire? For the privileged?
0: It's pretty bro-y still, I would say. (laughs) And I would say, though, also that my next step is to delve into different, more diverse dimensions of, of fire. Tanya being a woman, that was certainly a great perspective. And she, I think she's been sometimes been called like the mother of the fire movement or something like that. But it, in delving into this, I've learned, you know, there's a lot of women of color who blog about fire and evangelize for the fire movement. So I think it's changing, but I do think that there's some truth to the assertion that, Largely, this is the domain of people who are highly paid, highly educated. It's it's a pretty high class aspiration. Many people do not have the room in their budgets, even if they're being extremely frugal, to set aside enough to begin to approach a, a fund that would pay for an early retirement. So I think it still is a pretty rarefied subset of the population. I think we kid ourselves if we think otherwise.
1: And one of the pivots many of the content producers in the financial independence movement have made is to focus on better as opposed to retiring early. So the idea is that there may be people who are not in high-paying jobs or are in social situations where the idea of early retirement probably is not feasible And yet, this idea of getting control of their finances, learning about investing, being careful with your budget, and being frugal when necessary, those steps are helpful even if you are in this type of situation where probably early retirement is not an option. So it's really moved the goalpost a little bit to better as opposed to retire early. And I think that broadens out the message quite a bit.
0: I think it does too. I mean, uh, uh, acknowledgement of the role of debt in our lives, the virtue of trying to be debt-free, the virtue of building no-nonsense portfolios that are um, organized in a way that makes sense given your spending horizon. I think that there are a lot of healthy learnings that are there for people who are not in a position to retire early for whatever reason. So I think that there's a lot that's healthy about the culture. I would also point people who are interested in getting educated, well, we've got a lot of great stuff on Morningstar, but also to the Bogleheads, because I do think that for the investment planning piece, that community is just so terrific and so knowledgeable. So I think people can, can gain some learning there as well.
1: Yeah, the Bogleheads refers to Jack Bogle, who was the creator of index funds through Vanguard and a forum sprung up around the principles that he embraced called Bogleheads, which is incredibly helpful. You can go to the internet and just put it in your browser, Bogleheads, and find a great forum of people who are generally very willing to give you advice and it's all free and quite helpful and good not just for the experienced investor, but also for the novice who's willing to open up and ask questions.
0: Exactly. And I guess the thing that I love about Bogleheads, and this is something I try to talk about in my work as well, is fight the financial complexity complex because they are out there, they are peddling overly complicated solutions for investors. And oftentimes the simplest portfolios are the most effective. So that's what the Bogleheads believe in. They believe in this three fund portfolio where you have a total stock market index, a total international index, and a total bond fund, and maybe some cash on the side, but you're basically calling it a day And I think that just simplifying the investment portfolio is such a worthwhile strategy, no matter what your plans or aspirations are around financial independence or early retirement.
1: Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let's talk a little bit about financial complexity The Financial Independence Retire Early movement has really centered itself around something called the 4% safe withdrawal rate, or some people call it the 4% rule or the 4% rule of thumb. This idea that you can take the net worth of your assets and live off 4% every year, and that should sustain you into retirement. There's been a lot of criticism for the movement saying that that's a way too simple look at your retirement investments. Do you think that's reasonable?
0: I do. And so I would first just clarify the, the classic 4% guideline that financial planner Bill Bengen came up with several, I guess it was in the late 90s. It actually assumes that you take 4% of your portfolio in the first year of retirement, and then you inflation adjusts that dollar amount thereafter. So if I've got a million dollar portfolio, I can live on forty thousand dollars in year one. And then if inflation goes up a little bit, it's forty thousand and change in year two. So that's kind of the classic four percent guideline. And the idea there was that most of us in retirement want to have a semi-stable standard of living. We don't want to be buffeted around by our portfolio's value. So a different iteration of that strategy would be just to take four percent year in and year out. The downside of that is that you are completely buffeted around by whatever is going on in the market. So in good years you're living high on the hog, in bad years you are, you know, eating rice and beans. So the issue is that the 4% the flat percentage withdrawal is inherently much safer because it's tethered to your portfolio balance, but it is going to result in wild fluctuations in your standard of living, which most of us some of us might be willing to put up with, but many retirees don't. So increasingly that guideline, the one I talked about where you're taking a more or less real inflation-adjusted withdrawal from your portfolio every year, that's the one that's really under fire right now, even for traditional retirees. People think it's way too risky. It's too high an additional withdrawal. It's scary. So Jeff and I, my colleague, my co-host on the podcast recently interviewed Wade Fow, who is one of the leading retirement researchers. Wade strongly believes that a 4% initial withdrawal, even for people with a traditional 25 to 30 year time horizon, it's way too much. He thinks 3% is a safer initial withdrawal. And I would say that's probably quadruply so for early retirees, if they're taking a fixed- dollar amount, fixed real dollar amount from their portfolios, they need to be really careful before taking 4% and running with it. And the Funny thing about withdrawals is that they really hinge to whatever return expectations we have for stocks as well as bonds. And the real problematic part for withdrawal rates today is the bond piece, because we know the Federal Reserve has been in there doing its work in an effort to stabilize the economy and to keep people out there borrowing and spending and so forth. So the Fed has put the brakes on interest rates, and that means that the raw returns for good bond market performance are just not there. Where We're looking at starting yields of like 1% or 2%. We've never seen anything like that in market history. So when Bill Bengen went back in time and looked at what would have been a sustainable withdrawal rate in market history, he never had a time period like right now. Which is why I think retirement researchers are really nervous about people taking and running with the 4% guideline, the traditional 4% guideline.
1: You noted Wade Fow was on the show, but Michael Kitsis and Karsten Jasky, two other names in the financial independence movement who've been commenting on this phenomenon, also have been suggesting lower safe withdrawal rates in the current climate. So it's not just Wade fowl. These are, are concerns of many people who are studying retirement assets today.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think a key point is to the extent that you can be flexible and take less in Environments like right now that could potentially allow you to take more down the line. So, I would say if there's a commonality among all of the great research that's been done on withdrawal rates over the years, it's that t- to the extent that people can get closer to taking like a fixed percentage from their portfolio each year, and to the extent that they can find comfort with that, and early retirees may naturally be a little bit more flexible. They may be, as younger folks, just may be more flexible in terms of their mindsets, they may be able to get comfy with that fluctuating withdrawal. And I think that that can add to their portfolio sustainability. So I would say certainly for people who are embarking on early retirement, being conservative right now makes a world of sense. It may get better. I mean, maybe in a decade, we'll be looking at much higher bond yields than we have today, in which case we'll be back to an environment that's more supportive of of traditional withdrawal rates. But right now, that low yield environment makes traditional withdrawal rate planning a little bit scary. One
1: last discomfort I saw in your writing, and I won't call it a true criticism, I'll call it a discomfort with the FIRE movement, is you mentioned that there was some reliance on real estate to be part of the portfolio, and real estate can be problematic in general. Do you think that there's a lot of real estate assets, people using real estate incomes to prop up their financial independence finances?
0: I, I definitely know that that is part of the movement, that many fire proponents do use rental income as part of the equation to make early retirement work. And, you know, here's a spot where I have to step back and say, how much am I bringing my own biases to bear on this? And that m- my career has largely been focused on traditional investment planning, not incorporating residential real estate. But my colleague, David Blanchett, who I would say is up there with Wade Fow, in terms of being one of the seminal retirement researchers working today, he's done some looks, he's done white papers on residential real estate as an asset in portfolios. His overall takeaway is that this is an incredibly risky idiosyncratic asset. Whereas if you invest in the public markets and you're buying some broad basket of stocks and bonds, you're really diversifying away a lot of idiosyncratic risk. But anytime that you're investing in a single property, well, gosh, you're just subjecting yourself to a lot of region-specific risks, so what if you know, where you live is heavily dependent on the fortunes of a certain industry, for example? All of those things can work against the value of your property and, and sort of conspire against property ownership as being a great addition to a total investment portfolio. In general, our, our research was, would suggest that it's incredibly risky especially if you are forced to liquidate that property at at what's in an opportune time to do so. So I guess that's still a reservation. And then there are the whole separate issue of, of maintenance related to property, whether some people you know, are even cut out to, to do that sort of work. And certainly if you hire someone to do that, that cuts into your profit margins. Another thing that I think is top of mind is we're in this environment where if you haven't been paying attention, municipal finances are a basket case, not just here, here in Illinois, but in many other regions throughout the country, in part because tax receipts are way down due to this pandemic. We've got more healthcare costs that are getting laid upon municipalities. All of that puts municipal finances in a precarious state. I think it makes higher taxes on property owners a very realistic possibility. So I think that that's another risk factor to consider when people are sort of mulling property ownership as part of their their sort of total financial plan.
1: So we've talked a little bit about the benefits and criticisms of the FIRE movement. When you interviewed Tanya, she mentioned this idea that the current FIRE movement was BO'd by the Great Recession of 2008. In fact, more people than ever became interested in it. How do you think the current pandemic and economic recession are going to affect the fire movement. Do you think it's going to grow or contract based on what's happening right now?
0: It's a good question. And I would say Tanya's point for us was kind of counterintuitive. It's like, wait, what? That, how could a financial crisis give rise or sort of provide additional fire to the, to the fire movement? But her point was, I think that people, and I would say this is very much true of many younger Folks, they have the sense that their employers really that this contract that was there for perhaps our parents or grandparents that our employers just don't care about us. And so it's up to us to sort of create our own plans apart from whatever work might provide. So I would say, certainly, with unemployment rates as high as they are currently, we'll probably have people feeling more of that sense that that their employ, that their they just don't have that compact with their employers that perhaps was there a couple of decades ago. On the other hand, I'm of the mind that, and I'm not an economist, but I'm of the mind that this is not going to be an easy recovery and that, in fact, the market will probably experience much more significant volatility in the years ahead not just in the months ahead but i think well this will be playing out over a period of years so i think that may give some otherwise some people who might otherwise be inclined to go down this path it might give them pause because i have a feeling that we're in for a period of really rocky market returns in the years ahead that's just my guess and i think that that may crimp some plans to Embark on early retirement?
1: Certainly, the early retirement part is going to be delayed or changed by what's going on now. The returns that we expect to see over the next few years are just certainly lower. The idea in financial independence itself, I think, is about control. And maybe that's why we saw more interest after 2008. I began this interview by asking you about a lack of love between the financial advice business as well as FIRE practitioners. Do you see the FIRE movement moving away from or closer to the financial advice industry?
0: The financial advice industry is changing so much before our eyes. So I think that's sort of an interesting dimension of this as well, where there are a lot of different business models that are being experimented with that are gaining more traction. So I do think that fire proponents are quite reasonably balking at paying a financial advisor an ongoing fee. But I think that there are lots of different ways to obtain financial advice. I mean, I my husband and I have contracted with an hourly Advisor to help us with sort of specific parts of our financial plan because it's really hard to be an expert in everything. There are things that you have to just say, I don't have the wherewithal to research long-term care, for example, which is kind of the thing that we've contracted with an hourly advisor to help us with. We wanted to look at some of these hybrid long-term care products. Um, my hope is that fire proponents shouldn't shut themselves off to professional advice completely because I think that there are different ways to obtain it that can be really cost-effective, that can free you up to focus on things that you do well, that you feel like you can reasonably make assessments of, and you can kind of outsource some of these other areas. So the financial advice space is just changing really quickly. And I would urge people to not think, oh, it's just one type of advisor or another, there are lots of different dimensions to it.
1: Yeah, the FIRE movement's reliance on DIY, while I think served the movement very much in the beginning, again, I think the message is evolving and this idea that getting financial help is necessary because you can't be an expert in everything is certainly out there. And the FIRE movement definitely embraces fee-only advisors or people you can pay an hourly fee to come in and tweak your financial plan or help you with the parts that you don't understand. So things are changing and the fire movement is growing legs and getting older and maturing. And what's nice to see based on your piece is that what started out sounding like a pipe dream is actually a very robust community of people who are thinking more and more deeply about their financial lives and how to be content at a time when our society is struggling with financial difficulties and the pandemic. Christine Benz, it's been a pleasure having you on. Tell us where we can find you and what's up next in your life.
0: Yeah. I I write regularly on Morningstar.com. It's been my pleasure, by the way. I write regularly on Morningstar.com. I do a lot of videos for us. Jeff Patak and I have our podcast. It's called The Long View. Similar to this, it's sort of an interview format, deep dive into a conversation with personal finance or investing thought leader. And on Morningstar.com, in addition to buy stuff, which is all free, we also just have a lot of great articles and data and other resources for individual investors, especially. So thanks for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it too.
1: You are welcome. I've listened to a number of episodes of The Long View and have enjoyed it and hope everybody checks it out. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself.g, I wanted to thank Christine Benz. That's a wrap. Christine Benz was a fire skeptic. And in many ways, so was I until I discovered the profound ways in which it could change my life. And one of those is it helped me with a deep abiding sense of shame. Now bear with me. This is not something I usually talk about, but I have felt shame for most of my life. And it's hindered me and made me feel bad. And only in dealing with that shame have I felt the true freedom to live the life I want to live. But it took four decades to come to terms with that shame. Let's start at the beginning. I remember when my father was alive that he had... This pocket knife. I think it was ivory plated, and he used to keep it in his workshop in our basement. And I coveted this knife. It was the thing I wanted more than pretty much anything else. And I remember having a dream that my father had died, and then I could go down to his workshop in our basement. And have the knife for myself. I must have been 7 or 8 years old. I don't remember much about the dream or the time. Except that a few weeks later, my father had a brain aneurysm. And died. And as an 8 year old, I felt and thought logically enough that I knew I wasn't responsible for his death. I knew that dream I had had nothing to do with it. But no matter how much I knew that to be the truth, I still felt oddly responsible. And I remember feeling such shame at that dream. I remember feeling such shame that somehow if I had done things differently. If I had been a better son, maybe my father would have lived. Imagine, I carried this shame with me probably for two decades. It drove me to two extremes. One is it made me feel profoundly insecure, like I wasn't good enough, and like I couldn't accomplish anything. So, I had all these goals, whether it had to do with athletics or academics, and I continuously felt like I was failing at them. On the other hand, it pushed me towards achievement because I kept trying to prove that I was a worthy son. I kept on trying to prove that this intense shame I felt was unwarranted. So originally I failed, but eventually I started to succeed, and I had this huge drive. It pushed me to keep doing better, getting faster, being stronger, learning to be smarter. It pushed and pushed, and every time I did succeed, every time I did achieve, it pushed me to go farther, to not accept the height I had climbed to, but look towards the next peak. And this was a sentinel part of my childhood, this pushing forward. I had a learning disability when I was a kid to push through that, to learn how to be a good student, to learn how to overcome my problems and get the best grade so that I could go to the best college so I eventually could go to the best medical school, all of that, in a sense, was driven by this intense shame I felt. A shame that stayed with me really into my late college years or early 20s when I had the emotional wherewithal to come to terms with my father's death, and I was able to do something That almost sounds unnecessary, but until I did it, I couldn't move forward. I had to forgive myself. And that's what freed me in my 20s, is I learned to forgive myself for my father's death, which I was in no way responsible for. And yet, by only giving myself that permission to let myself off the hook, to be gracious towards myself... Could I move on? And it was incredibly freeing to let go of that shame, which lasted for probably a year or two. Because right at that time, the other thing happening in my life is I was growing into my career as a physician. And the shame I felt for my father's death was quickly replaced by shame having to do with being a medical student and a doctor. Because that's what medical education is all about. It's about feeling shame. In fact, some of your earliest experiences in medical school are senior doctors making you feel inadequate because you don't have the knowledge that they have, the knowledge that you haven't had time to acquire yet, the knowledge that they got through years and years of experience. You are supposed to know everything from day one, and you are made to feel shame and embarrassed when you don't. And that shame carries. You enter third and fourth year of medical school, and then eventually residency, and you become responsible for people's lives. And a good part of that experience is the finger-pointing and blaming that goes on during our medical rounds, where the attendings blame the residents, the residents blame the students, the students blame the patients. Basically, it's an attempt by everyone involved to abdicate responsibility. And so I walked away from that shame of feeling responsible for my father's death and went right into the frying pan of medical education. And I can remember a specific episode that really was the height and the beginning of a shame that would last another few decades. I was a second year resident working in the ICU on call one night after all my fellow residents and attendings had left being the only physician left with these very sick patients, when one of my patients went into respiratory distress. And I did the best I could to take care of the problem. It became clear that I would have to place the patient on a ventilator and put in a breathing tube. And I struggled. My skills were not good enough. My ability not developed enough. I did the best I could, and when we finally got the patient on the ventilator, I had a sigh of relief because I had kept the oxygen levels up, and even though I had struggled, I had done everything I thought to be right. And then moments later, the patient coded and died, and I did CPR, and every resuscitative measure I had in my bag of tricks... And he died anyway. And it was 2 in the morning and I was the only doctor in the ICU and I called the patient's family up and they came in and I told them that their father and husband had died and we sat in a conference room and they thanked me for all that I had done and they left and by that point I had been up for 30 hours in a row with no sleep And the next morning came, and as I was rounding with my attending physician and fellow residents, I got a number of phone calls. The secretary came over, interrupted us, and said, You know, Doc G, you really need to take these phone calls. It appears the man who died had not just the wife and children who came the night before to hear the horrendous news, but also three other children— that were not in contact with his family. And so that morning, those three children called from various places around the country, and I had to tell each one of those women, he had three daughters, I had to tell each one of those women that their father died over the phone. And it was a horrendous experience. One of them cursed me. Another of them cried. The last just sat there on the phone silently And my heart broke because I had let them down. I had let my patient down, and the intense shame I felt in that moment shattered my confidence. It changed me. I learned to build up these walls around myself and my heart so that I wouldn't have to feel anymore. And I was lost. I was standing on the edge of a precipice looking down and maybe I could have saved myself, but instead I took the plunge into loneliness and isolation and fear and sadness and yes, shame. It would be years later when my son was born And I held him in my arms in the delivery room and looked into his eyes and realized how utterly broken I was from that experience. And then I began to heal. And once again, I had to forgive myself. Maybe for the second time for something that I had very little control over and yet to move forward. I had to let myself off the hook. But the problem with medicine is even though I got over that horrendous night in the ICU, even though I learned how to break down some of those walls and barriers, there was an endless opportunity for feeling shame in medicine as I went forward. Even as an attending physician, There was always a reason to feel badly, whether it was the patients who were angry at you because they didn't feel you were doing enough, or it was the insurance company that didn't want to pay for the test you were ordering, or it was Medicare coming to audit you and slap you on the wrist for billing incorrectly, or the hospital administrator who felt like you weren't admitting enough patients. It didn't matter where the source of shame was coming from. It was constant. And then, of course, there was the biggest shame of all when I was sitting at home one night a few years ago and I got a knock on the door and it was a process server handing me a piece of paper saying that I was being sued for the care of one of my patients. And I had always marked in my brain this idea that being sued, what would be what I would call a triggering event, it would trigger me to leave medicine because when I got to that point that I was just another number in this crazy malpractice game, that I was done and it was over. Within a few months of this happening, I had closed down my medical practice, I had stopped seeing patients in the nursing homes, and the only thing, clinically, that I would do anymore was practice hospice medicine. That was two years ago two years since I've examined a patient, two years since I've made a diagnosis, I have been doing administrative work in a hospice, which I love. And for the last two years, I felt something I never knew I would feel, which is just intense and incredible relief. For the first time in my 47 years of life, 45 years at that time when I stopped seeing patients, I no longer feel shame. The first two decades of my life were clouded by that shame I felt from my father's death. The next two decades, by the intense shame of being a practicing physician, the last two years have been wonderful and freeing, and I feel more myself than I ever have. So why am I telling you all this? Why am I talking about it? Well, Christine Benz was saying that she was a great fire skeptic and learned how to see the benefits of this movement. If you want to know what the true benefit to me of financial independence is, It was the thing that helped relieve me of some of the shame, you see, because two years ago, when I finally decided to leave medicine, when I decided that was what I needed to do for my own sense of sanity, I would have never been able to do that unless I had my finances in order. I would have never been able to leave medicine unless I was financially independent and had learned about the financial independence retire early community. In many ways, it saved me. It helped me get over this sense that had clouded most of my life. It helped me step away from shame. Listen, I can't tell you what your personal finances mean to you. I can't tell you the role that debt plays in your life and why you should pay it off or not pay it off. Only you can answer those questions. But learning about financial independence, taking care of my money, my wealth, and my legacy has served me in ways I had never even imagined. It has helped me escape this intense feeling of shame that has followed me throughout my life. It has made for me all the difference. And maybe, just maybe, it'll do the same for you.
0: Right. No, it's so I mean, the the whole study of luck, like the role that luck plays in our thinking about things. I wonder if some sort of young, successful people are just sort of not spending much time thinking about how luck can break the (laughs) break the other way. Mm -hmm. um, Because I think that that is so under discussed, the role of of luck and how things play out. And the older we get, I think the more we acknowledge how lucky we've been or how unlucky we've been and how, you know, it's not just our doing. It's there's a lot of luck or lack of luck that determines what happens in our lives.
1: You can tell a lot about how thoughtful someone is in the fire community when you start talking to them about sequence of returns risk. And it becomes very clear whether they kind of have a clue or don't have a clue. Right. Because most of the people who are really serious about this will tell you their 10 year plan and say, well, I have these buckets and here's where income's going to come from. And here's where my safety fund is here's which stocks and bonds I'm going to use first. And then if the market goes down, here's where I'm going to go next. And you can tell a lot by someone how they answer the, you know, how are you going to start your drawdown? How, how's the first exactly. 10 years of drawdown going to go? To, exactly. And if they, can, if they can give you a good coherent answer to that, you know that they've done the work. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.